We're opening up the book of Ephesians this morning, and I'm tackling the greeting. It's, uh, it's amazing when you start uh, unpackaging the Word of God. I, I asked this first service, Darren, would you mind putting the light up a little bit more so I can see my notes a little bit better? Um, that would be awesome. But um, yeah, great. Thank you. The, uh, the, the, the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, we're sharing this as far as teaching duties. Uh, you guys continue to pray for Pastor Brian as he goes through this time of healing his voice. Lord willing, uh, that'll be taken care of soon. But he has a, a time of preparing for his procedure that he shared about uh, in the past and, uh, and then rest. So we're, we're covering the book of Ephesians as a, as a group project, if you will. And I have the pleasure of, of just doing the first two verses. And, and the reason why is uh, if you just want to throw that scripture up there, let's read it together. I'll show you why it's tough to get even past one verse, as I found out when uh, first service. Uh, Ephesians 1 through 2. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's just read that together, okay? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about the first word in that sentence, which is Paul. And this will demonstrate kind of my point of how we could go a long time on this. I could do a month. I could do a a year, potentially, just on looking at Paul. Just on taking that first verse, that first word of the first verse, and and staying there and camping out there for a while. We're going to take a look about why this one word, this one name has significance. And I'll start out with this, is because if you turn, by the way, if you have a marker, a book, a Bible marker or something like that, keep it in Ephesians 1, because we're going to go Scripture uh, Roman today. And uh, what I want you to turn to right now is uh, Acts chapter 7. I'm going to throw some Scriptures up here. They're just references, which is why you want to have your Bible ready to turn, because we're going to cover a lot of things. But one of the things I want to start out with was just looking at who this Paul is, because it is a miracle, an act of God, an act of grace, that Paul could even write that to the churches in this area of what would be modern-day Turkey. The fact that he wrote Paul is an act of grace, is a statement of faith, is a statement of grace, and that abundant grace at that. And I want to show you why. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54 we see, we come upon a scene of the stoning of the first martyr for his witness of Christ, which is Stephen. Stephen is the first one to die because of the testimony that he's giving the masses here. And it's a group, it's a mob mentality. The, the mob is working up to a frenzy. And in verse 54 it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, Stephen. He was recounting how Jesus was fulfillment of all these scriptures. And they're starting to get enraged, it says. It says, but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw Jesus literally standing in the presence of God the Father. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They refused to listen and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they eventually stoned him. 
And then this is, this, is, this is a key statement. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want you to picture this. Saul is Paul. But let's go back into Paul's old life. Stephen is being persecuted for his testimony of the very Savior that Paul would, would soon become a leader of the movement of. He was going from a place of authority in this stoning where they literally would say, here's my coat, Paul, right at your feet, one by one, just being set as this is a God thing. This isn't just a good thing. This is a God thing. We're protecting the integrity of our Jewish faith and heritage as written in Moses and the prophets. And, and, and Paul is giving his, it's a sign of authority. It's laying coat by coat at his feet as he is doing a service to God to rid the people of the cancer that, in his view, is a cancer to the masses, which is this way. It's called the way at this point. People are just, the word of Christ is starting to spread, and Paul's not on my watch. We're going we're gonna to snuff this out before it gets big, and we're going to do it by, even if we have to uh, kill somebody to, to snuff this out, we're going to do it. And, and so, one by one, the people, it says, that they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So I want you to think about this. In verse 1, if you look at that scripture, verse 1 of Ephesians 1, he says, Paul. Now, picture this. This is where my mind goes. Is he's writing the scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, can you see him like stuck on that letter? Stuck on that letter? Because here's what happens. He starts seeing the garments. One by one by one. And, he, and, and they're laid down. And he's the guy in charge. And he's the one saying, this is a God thing. And here he is at this point as people are saying, yes, Paul, this is a good thing that you're doing. I'm in allegiance with you to persecute this person who's speaking heresy. Paul, as he's writing this letter, is able to say, that's not me anymore. Do you see the power in that? Just him being bold enough to say, I'm not Saul. But still... Like being a person like me, still at the same time struggling with the memories of when he was apart from Christ, an enemy of Christ, literally an enemy of Christ. You guys, those of us who, who, who came to Christ came as an enemy of Christ. And you may not have, have, have set in one, sentenced one of his believers to death, but nonetheless, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, haven't we? And we've all, in a sense, just said, yeah, this is good. I want to live my own life. Thanks a lot, Jesus, for what you did. I don't need it. And, and in Paul, as he's writing this first, first word, can you imagine the, the temptation at least to write Paul? Because when you write a new name that Christ has given you, that's a statement of faith, right? When you get up in the morning and you consider yourself a believer based on what God's done in your life to save you, and we're going to look at a scripture in just a second of how this deliberately or distinctly points to this, is that it's an issue of faith when you come and say, God, I'm not worthy of the grace that you've shown me, but I'm going to believe that it is true because you've said it is and because of your finished work on the cross. So one, one word, the first word of the letter to the church is Paul's able to say, I have a new identity. There's something different. There's something that's happened. 
There's, there's a work of God in my life demonstrated by, just on the onset, my name. And I'm so thankful to write Paul instead of Saul. Isn't that awesome? So thankful for God revealing himself to me in a way that I understood the gospel, hearing about the name Jesus my whole life, but not even having any dots to connect, even if I could. But then, given to me through the word of God, through people my own age when I was 18, coming and sharing me what God had done. And it was like, man, Lord, you did a work, and it was all grace. Look at Acts 8. Go over one page. Or just look there, verse 1. This gets deeper in truth as you look at these scriptures, and that's my purpose in sharing them. And Saul proved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered (coughs) throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Check this out, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul's on a mission, but he's on an anti-God mission. He doesn't even know it. And he has to deal with all those images and those faces in his mind, on perhaps a day-by, maybe moment-by-moment basis. And you guys, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you have to take every thought captive because the enemy is there throwing your mistakes and your sin of your past in front of you as reason why you can't approach the holy God. You are not worthy. You are, in fact, an enemy of the Lord. You, you, your thoughts are wayward from moment to moment. You have no right coming to God. And even perhaps an uncomfortable seat, as comfortable as it may be, this morning, the one you sit in is uncomfortable because you know the gravity of your sin and, and you're tempted to just live in that as a reality when God has actually done everything in his power, which is powerful, to have you identify yourself with a new identity, which I'm no longer just me, just James, independent of God's grace. But now I'm James, a new creation. Listen to this scripture. It's amazing how God makes it true. Jumping ahead a little bit. Well, let's wait on that. Let's go to, let's, let's go to Acts 9, the conversion of Saul. Saul still breathing threats, and he's going off on the church, on the people of the way. And in verse 4, it says, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he couldn't see, and he neither ate nor he drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen a vis- in a vision a man named Ananias, you, Come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. And here's the thing. But Ananias responds, Lord, I've heard from many. This guy's reputation precedes him, right? I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, 
For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now I want you to think about this. When Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How much power can you imagine there was in that voice uttering the name Saul? That on the road made him stop in his tracks. When Jesus says your name, there's more than just identifying your name. But every, can you just imagine? I mean, I'm, I, I, I picture myself in Paul's place and, and, I, and, and to be completely arrested just by God saying your name. Because what's in that? I'll tell you what's in that. That's in all the knowledge that God has of who you are and what your name represents and how you're living without God, in this case, in opposition to him. When he says Saul and says it twice, I can imagine Paul, Saul at the time, just not being able to do anything but just look down in shame. There's something about when Jesus calls your name, when he's calling out to you to come to him and to be saved and to be brought out from the world that arrests you and you can't do anything but simply tremble and fear and just say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when that happens, God has mercy on you. But there's something about if that hasn't happened in your life, boy, that's where you, it's not like you just flip a coin. Yeah, let's see, Jesus or not Jesus, all right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a place of intense realization that God knows everything he knows about you, yet still loves you. And when you come to that place, you can't just flippantly say, yeah, okay, that's good. You actually get floored by it. In this case, Saul knows he's been not just persecuting believers, but now he's saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now it's personal, isn't it, to the God, to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Can you imagine the intensity by which Jesus calls your name? And, and Saul was in that moment, and all he could do was, who are you, Lord? And I don't know what that response was, but I don't think it was a very confident one. I think what God was doing, and, and illustrated by the fact that he blinds Saul, here's this guy. People were bringing their coats, laying it down at his feet. Now he's being held by hand so that he can actually go from one place to the next. What happened there? It was a process of seeing Christ for who he was, being called by God, in a powerful way, and him actually being what? Stripped of dignity and pride. This is a process of conversion. You see Christ who he is, that he knows you and everything about you. Calls you because he's actually even interested in you, which is a miracle in and of itself, even if it were just judgment. For him to know my name, that's still a blessing. But then you have a humbling in response. A humbling in response. And Saul knew what it was to be crushed. And now he's come face to face with what? I was persecuting Jesus. The the heaviness of that just makes the first word Paul. I can imagine him just penning these words and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and all those reminding of I'm not Saul anymore and the freedom and the joy that comes from that truth. Has it happened to you? Do you have a new name? More than that, do you have a new identity? Are you in Christ then? The answer is resounding yes. And so, and so maybe tears of thankfulness and joy dripping upon the very scroll that was being written 
Maybe not by Paul himself. Maybe just having somebody write it, but I could imagine those tears welling up. It says, for some days, verse 19, he was, at, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was a Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And get this, verse 26. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. He's like knocking on the door, and they're ignoring the knock. Because they got a little peephole. And like, isn't that Saul? Don't let him in. He's like, can I come in? I'm one of you guys. Don't let him in. He's just giving you, a, you know, a bill of goods because he wants to persecute us. Can you imagine that little dialogue there? And how do you get someone to actually believe there's been a life change that from the innermost part of a man coming out? We see it in the fruit. Here Paul's being threatened with death. And he's not cowering. He's not saying, hey, uh, I, I, I'm interested, but I haven't decided yet if I'm part of the way. No, he was out there boldly proclaiming all of a sudden and he's getting persecuted to the point of threatened of death. And I think that's what God needed for the church to be able to have somebody like verse 27, Barnabas coming by. He said, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Don't give up on non-Christians. Don't give up on them. Pray for them. And sometimes advocate for them. Advocate for him. Encourage him. God's doing something in your life. Don't ignore it. Celebrate it. How can I help you? How can I bring you to a place of being a part of the body of Christ? Not from the outside looking in, but part of us. And that's what Barnabas did for Saul. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. They accepted him. He starts preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. doesn't mean they, the circumstances had died down. It just means they had abundant peace through the circumstances. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So God's like, from his point of view, from his perspective, he's got a real change in direction, perhaps, just on the choice of, of Saul. Imagine Saul laying awake at night just thinking about the grace that God was having on him, that he wasn't struck down on the spot when he called Saul, Saul. He's just like, thank you, God, that I'm even alive. I've gone toe-to-toe with you, and I've hurt your church. I've hurt my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters now, I was cast them into prison. I was having them stoned. They were looking to me for leadership, and I studied all about you my whole life, and I had it all wrong. I couldn't see. But now you made me blind. You humbled me, and now I'm able to see perfectly. In that, I can tell others how you connect the dots through the Old Testament so vividly that I, I don't even know how I missed it. What a privilege, God, that you would call me to come and bring such an amazing message. That's the first word in Ephesians 1.1. Paul. 
what a work of grace. Doesn't that give you hope that you're not too far gone personally and that those who you love are not too far gone? Perhaps you're here even this morning and you, don't, you just know there's, there's some barrier between you and God. You haven't come to a place of submitting to him your life and asking for forgiveness and coming to a place of just knowing you call me by name because you know who I am. I was created by you and I need you desperately. I'm sorry for my sin. If you haven't done that, do it. Do it honestly before God and he'll hear that prayer and he'll change your name from Saul to Paul and make you a new creation. And those of us who have experienced that grace, doesn't it make you just want to, you know, Love him, serve him, have a life that glorifies him, do things well, do things according to his word that brings life. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Look at a, the word apostle. He says, Paul, and then he, he, he goes, here's my identity, but here comes my calling. I'm an apostle. There was an original 12. Judas, we know what happened to him, Matthias. Uh, became the 12th to replace him. But you don't really hear anything about Matthias after he's mentioned in the book of Acts. Who do you hear mostly in the New Testament about? Much of Acts, who was writing it, was Paul. He was an apostle. He was, he was one of the originals to have personal contact with Jesus. That's a special office within, special role within the body of Christ. I think we do our dis, uh, maybe a little bit of disservice as far as adding confusion when we call ourselves apostle in this sense that it's not the apostles that were with Jesus and sent by him. But basically to be an apostle, the word here just means you're sent. You're a messenger. But of course we know that there had special meaning within that for these people that were with Jesus. But you could say, if if you expand the meaning of this word out, it really applies to all of us. We're all sent out to something, some purpose, right? We all have a calling from the Lord. Yeah, it's to be saved. But once you're saved, it's like, Let's do this, God. Whatever you have for my life, I want to be a part of it. I don't want to miss out on the adventure you have for me. You guys, even if we end up going hungry or persecuted for our faith or we suffer in some way or another, I mean, can you imagine being a disciple, being an apostle and living the life they had? Can you imagine them getting together on a a dinner table or around a a feast and just talking about stories of how God had delivered people and healed people and they'd been on this adventure of faith where they forsook everything and then followed him, but he was faithful to provide all their needs along the way and just all these things, and they had seen the risen Lord. There's no way you could substitute that kind of experience for life and say, ah, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have suffered. I wish I wouldn't have just thrown myself out there to to be persecuted. It wasn't worth it. Of course it was. They're looking at their lives as being saved, and they're looking at their lives with purpose, and it went and it affected not just their community, but it goes on from Judea, Samaria, all the uttermost parts of the world. Can you imagine from heaven's perspective, they're like those people at Calvary Slow this very morning are, 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 are linked directly to our testimony. Praise the Lord. It was worth it. We only had so many years, but it had impact. And it didn't die with me when I died. It's the kind of life I want. Some would mean. Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians. He says, last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared to me, that is Jesus. He's recounting this. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. 
So that's a heavy burden to wear, unless, unless you have a change, an exchange of rags for Christ's righteous, pure clothes. Then it becomes part of your testimony, and you proclaim with it the grace of God that was poured upon you as an unworthy sinner. So you're garbage that you brought into this relationship and in some ways you know we obviously don't get perfected when we come to Christ we still have struggles you still have shame perhaps the Saturday night didn't go so well even last night and you have shame with that but the same solution is there for all of us isn't it we come to Christ and there we get cleansed fresh mercy for the every day that we need and grace that's reminded to us that it's not something we earn it's something that Christ earned for us on our behalf Let's look at the word, the phrase, Christ Jesus. This is really pretty significant. You know Christ is an adjective? It can stand on its own as a noun, but it's an adjective. And what does it mean? What does Christ in the Greek mean, Christos? It means anointed. Now, it's not just an anointing, random anointing. It is the one that they were expecting to be anointed by God himself to be the Savior, to be the King to be the one in charge of all the people that would come, that would be sent one day and his government would have no end. It's the Christos. It's the adjective. It's the on, there's only one anointed in this way. In fact, you guys remember in John 1, they asked John the Baptist, are you the Christ? Are you the one we were waiting for? Are you the one that's going to set everything right? And he says, I am not the Christ. Boldly saying, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what are you then, Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. He said, who are you? And he goes on to describe it. You guys are probably familiar with this. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even, if he, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. I can't do a slave work for this one in particular. The anointed one stands unique above all others the perfect lamb that was coming to save the world from their sin. He says, I'm not even worthy to un- unloose his sandal. I'm not, I can't even do a slave work for him. He's too pure. He's too holy. He's, he's the anointed. And then Jesus, the form of Joshua, for Hebrew, points to the meaning of that as Jehovah's salvation. The covenantal God is going to save through his anointed one, Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, I'm Paul with a new identity. I'm being sent to those who don't know about the anointed one who saves God. That's his calling. But you guys have a calling, don't you? What's your calling? What's your calling? What is it that God has called you to be? Well, you you may start answering that question a number of ways, but I would say this. That we're all called, first and foremost, to love him. Because remember when they asked Jesus, hey Jesus, can you, can you give us a hint, an, an inkling of, of understanding? What's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing we should know? Summarize it, if you will. Rank the things of, this, of the scripture, of the, the holy word of God. What is the most important? He said, he quotes Deuteronomy 6. And he says, you, you, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. 
And he said, the second's like it, out of numbers, love your neighbors yourself. So when they asked Jesus, what's the most important thing? What's your calling, saints, is to love God. And as you love him, as you're transformed from the inside out, he starts filling in the what? What is it? While you love God, what is it that you're supposed to be doing? And some of them are pretty obvious. I'll list some. To be an amazing dad. To be an amazing spouse. To be an intentional mom. To be a faithful employee. To treat your workers with dignity and respect and bless them whenever you can. To love your children. To be a faithful child. To honor your parents. Those are things that we can just say, I am called by God. I'm sent out as a messenger of grace to the ones that are closest to me. And then as God brings people into my life beyond that, I'm stoked to meet them, stoked to love on them, eager to minister uh, to them. Now, he says, I'm an apostle, and I'm sent. I'm sent to Gentiles specifically, but we can put in our own uh, statement there what we're called to. I'm very humble to be called to be a pastor. That's, that's one role, but it's only one. And you guys are needed for what God's called you to do. And it may not be this, it may not be that, but it's important because the commander has given you the commands. He knows you by name. He's made you in Christ so that you can have a purpose and fulfill that. Um, This is really cool. By the will of God. The the Greek word is thalama or thalema. And it really means what he commands... Uh, his will, his choice, inclination, desire, or pleasure. It's the same word as when in Matthew 6, uh, where Jesus tells us how to pray. He says, pray like this. He's like, your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Your will, same word. Dilemma. What I like about this is that Paul had some crazy adventures, didn't he? Paul had some crazy adventures. And it was all the hand and will and knowledge and preeminence of God's choice. What I like about this is that it eliminates the what or what it looks like. And it just comes down to a matter of God's will over mine. And as we, as we set our sights in prayer to pray, then, then it's worthy for us to take notice, like Jesus told us to pray, that we would pray that God's will would be done not over our own. It's like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What an amazing example of someone submitted to the Father's will where he says, you know, Lord, if there's any way, Father, if there's any way this cup could be could pass over, be spared from this judgment, then let it be done. But <clears throat> not will, my will, but your, your will be done. Remember that? Where he's like, this is the most intense time of Jesus' life. And he's demonstrating us how it means to say, even if you choose, if, even if the what of what I'm going to be going through, what I'm doing... I wouldn't choose it myself, but I want your will above all. And if it includes stuff that's difficult and hard and the hardest of trial, then I want to go through it. You guys met crazy people that are actually at peace and rest, even though the house is literally shattering around them. You guys, isn't it amazing to watch the miraculous work of God to say, this is the will of God for me, and it, and it really stinks, to be honest with you. I wouldn't have chose it for myself, but it's kind of, it doesn't matter because I know whose will it is that I'm, that I'm under. And his will is will of that of some really cool images in the scripture. I want to remind us of some of these, okay? So when you hit a trial or when things come up unexpectedly, the hardest of which 
Just remember how God is described in the scriptures and how we're described. Here's a few of them. According to his desires, we are the clay, and he is the potter. He's the one fashioning, right? We are the sheep, he is the? We are his slaves, and he is our benevolent master. We are body members, and he is the? We are the branches. He is the? We're saved. He is our? Savior. We're his children. He is our? He's our Father. He's our Abba. He loves us. His will comes through that hand. Uh, We're his captives, or we are captives before we come to Christ. He's our Redeemer. He purchased us with his own blood. We're his image bearers. He's our creator. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We want something of, 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 of true uh, fulfillment, and he is our sustenance. We're his ambassadors, and he is our king sending us out, and so on and so on. So are we the one with all those images of who we are and who Christ is? Are we the ones that say, my will be done? Or is the picture, God, your will be done, even when it comes to great pain or trial to me? Just like Paul was to say, I got a new identity. I won the lotto already. My sins are not going to be held against me. God can choose to do with my life whatever he wants. And sometimes it's really, really, really fabulous, and it's a time of blessing. But you know what? It's filled with a lot of pain, too. And that doesn't decrease who God is. These things aren't, aren't affected by the circumstance they actually exist outside the circumstance. And, it's, and it paints a picture for us that he's what? That he's trustworthy. And he's faithful through all seasons. And if you're going through times of testing now, know that you're not orphaned. You're not abandoned. Christ goes before you, behind you, alongside you, gave you the Holy Spirit, the comforter that's going to be. I'm going to be in you. Don't fear, my child. I'm with you. I'm with you. I love you. I saved you. I gave you a new identity in Christ. I've poured grace upon your life. Don't worry. I'm going to be with you through this. Even unto heaven. We're with him one day and we're like, Lord, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. It wasn't in vain that I went through things. It wasn't in vain. You had a purpose. I couldn't even see it clearly. But now I do. Kind of like Paul. I couldn't see. But then Jesus was gracious and he blinded me. So I could. So I could, so I could see. Now, this is really cool. A few things left. To the saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus. What are saints? The Greek word is hagios. Listen to this, you guys. The Holy Spirit. We say that all the time. Third person in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The word holy that's translated saints here is the same word, holy, as we say Holy Spirit. Same word. The, the description is the same. So what do we mean by that? What I mean by this is we, our lives, our instruments, our vessels in the hand of our, of, our, of our true God, just as if you were a vessel to be placed in the tabernacle or temple for the purposes of God's use. Let's, let's talk about the lampstand, if you will. You know those menorahs? One, one, if you were going to put one in the temple, you had to carve it a certain way. It had to have so many branches coming out. It had to be serviced by replacing oil certain times a day by the priest. 
You just didn't say, ah, let's use that one. That'll work. I don't know if it works or not, but throw in the temple. No, no, no. It was a holy thing to be treated as if it was, tre- it was before the very God who created heaven and earth and everything in it. And so when you're a vessel being placed in the temple of God, you have a purpose to fill. You're, you're holy. You're hagios. You're set apart. There's a purpose for you. And you are considered fit to be in the presence of God. So when he says, Paul, an apostle of the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the saints part, don't miss this, it's not the best of you guys made the cut and the rest of you guys keep trying. It's you guys are saints. You're holy. You're able to be in the presence of God and there's a purpose for your life as a vessel of the, an extension of the Lord's will by the will of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear place like that, phrase like that, it gets me great excitement to wake up to see what God has in store for me. Because I can be in his presence. I'm not cast off. I'm welcome. And he has a plan that he's working out in my life according to his purposes. One is to be a good dad. One is to be a good husband. And then from there on, serving the church, whatever it is for you, you have a purpose and you're holy. And it's not making the cut by your performance. It's just you have a new identity and you're incorporated in even the very Holy Spirit, the Hagios Spirit is given to you, in you, sealing you, as sealing you, like later on Ephesians will talk about, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are holy. You belong to him. You don't get voted into this club by other saints because you did such and such. You're welcomed in by the one who died for you and set apart as holy. You are saints. You are all saints if you're in Christ Jesus because he's holy and he's welcomed you in as his child. Is that encouraging? So every time you feel condemned, every time he brings that image or you think about the coats being brought at your feet and all the shame that you had, you realize, no, God, by your word, you tell me that I am a, a holy saint. It's kind of different. You don't like go around like putting that on your placards saint so-and-so, but you could, right? You could, and you're not proclaiming you're better than other people. You're just proclaiming the miraculous work of God on your behalf to make you acceptable in the beloved, accepted in the beloved. Praise God, huh? In Ephesus is missing in a couple translations, but that's not a problem because if it was intended for the churches as a group in that area, it, it really fits well in, and we, we, there's a lot of reason why it would be in Ephesus, for one, the majority of manuscripts, but for two, if you jump ahead, going to who are at Ephesus, that church, um, Acts 18 and 19 describe how Paul spent time with this church. And one thing I want to point out here, and um, we're getting close to ending, so just hang on. You guys still with me? The saints who are at Ephesus, this is amazing. It's really, really important that we, that we understand this. If, if Paul's writing to a group of people that are, that are believers in Christ, and he's encouraging them with first three chapters is gospel, gospel, gospel. 
The last three chapters of Ephesians are practically how does that look as we live it out in our different callings, in our different, um, in a sense, apostleship, okay? We're sent out with a purpose. But here's the thing. If you go 40 years in the future, chronologically speaking or, or on a timeline speaking kind of reference, you end up at a place called Revelation 2. Turn there real quick with me to Revelation chapter 2. The first verse. This was written approximately 40 years after the book of Ephesians was. Paul is writing a letter to them. Later on, (coughs) John records words of Christ to this group of believers. And in verse 1 in Revelation 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what, that's translated right before this passage, where it says the seven stars, the angels, he has them in his, in, his, in his possession, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. He's walking in the midst. Those lampstands represents the churches, these, these gathering of believers, one of which is Ephesus. And he says about them specifically, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can't bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. Now, everything you just listed were good things, but they're all external. Do you guys catch that? They're all external things. They're good things, but they're external. Here's his complaint. He says, I have this against you, church in Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. So they're believers, but they need to reexamine their priorities, to reexamine the list of to-dos, if you will. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent. What do you mean, Jesus? It's to love again. He says, if not, I'll come and I'll remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he's, he's basically saying, it's time to come back to what's most important. Again, what did Jesus say was the most important commandment? Not do a bunch of stuff, but love God first with all your being, your, all your heart. All your now, 40 years had passed. They were doing great. They had wonderful teaching. They had Paul. Uh, Timothy was set up as their pastor. They had Apollos at some point. They had John at some point. They had Achilla Priscilla at one point. They had a whole amazing lineup of people that were leading this the, and teaching here in their midst. And, and all with those, all those blessings, they had come to a point 40 years later, and Christ says, you've left your first love. This is why I'm saying it. The, the faithful, they're faithful, Okay. He says that in that verse in Ephesians 1. But here's the thing. What's most important is that the faithful in Christ Jesus, in the one, Jehovah is salvation, the one who saves, the anointed one. It's so vital that we don't miss this, that in order to avoid God coming and possibly removing even our church, as we stay founded in that place, like Paul, to be fascinated with the fact that he can give you a new identity, that he's been gracious to you. That's why in verse 2, he just goes right to the punch, grace and peace to you. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. How do you stay close to your first love? You go back to grace and how it's been poured out on your account, not by your own merit, in fact, in spite of you. So that you can be melted in the place of love again and say, Jesus, not my will be done. Your will be done. I'm here for you because you love me so much. 
And Jesus would say, that's where you need to stay. That's where you need to stay. So guys, gals, as the worship team comes up, be in awe today that you have a new identity. You know, there's a scripture that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Say it again. The old is, the new has come. That's true for us today, for those of us in Christ Jesus. See, I told you it was only going to be one verse. Summarize the second verse in like a minute. But what a, what a packed journey through Ephesians we're going to have, you guys. Different teachers giving different perspectives. But it's all centered on this, that we might be reminded in the letter of Ephesians from Paul the reasons why we're so in love with our Savior. Because he's given us grace. And he's changed our identity. And if you're not a believer at this point in your life and you talk to somebody, there's going to be people available to talk to. There's going to be some by the cross. We also have the elements for communion available to everyone so you can be reminded of where this grace flows from. It flows from the sacrifice of our Savior for our behalf to purchase us from slavery to sin. He redeemed us. He's our Redeemer. And the blood is signified by the juice and the, the cracker signifying his body that was broken for you. So I encourage you to celebrate that. Um, not, you know, if you have some people you can celebrate it with, great. But um, now it's just time to give thanks. So let's stand together and, uh, and let's praise. And let's give thanks to our Savior, the praise that due to him in light of these things. Sound good? Father God, we thank you so much that we can have the reality of this morning. Right here in this place, the reality is that you love us. And we get to sing of that love, and we get to celebrate it, and we get to establish it as true. We get to expand our faith into areas that we would normally be weak in, to be prey to the past of that weighing us down. Some of us, even this very moment, can recount even even just an hour ago or last night of just not doing things as you would want us to do. I pray that that wouldn't hinder us, that we would bring our faults, our sin to you, and that you would receive us, and you would cleanse us afresh, and that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit in all of us, be able to just shout words of praise in exclamation of the goodness by which you treat us, God. You are our Father. We are your children. We love you, and we thank you, God, for grace. Thank you for the grace, God. Love you, Jesus. Let's worship him. Let's give him thanks.